0: As I did in the preliminaries of the Sunday school, praying for my son, Stephen, as he'll be traveling after the morning service from their church in Terre Haute up to Dunbar, Wisconsin, for a week of uh, intensive studies there. But uh, also let me encourage you to be praying for others. Brian and Elaine will be traveling this week and leaving tomorrow, so please be praying for them. Linda, I don't know how long you get to stay with us. Until Tuesday, so we'll be praying for Linda Riskis. She'll be heading back uh, on Tuesday, and uh, Ryan uh, Carter will be going back on Tuesday morning, heading back toward Pensacola, Florida. Finish up, and uh, next time you come, you're staying, right? You're not leaving again. Never again, right, is it? He gets back there. Anyway, you pray for Ryan, and Linda, Ryan Elaine, and uh, Stephen. I appreciate your prayers in regard to these folks traveling. Here in Romans chapter 8, let me call your attention to verse number 14. Bible says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit Himself beareth witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together and verse 18 for i reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us so read verses 14 through 18 of roman's chapter 8 i speak to you from this text this morning on the subject of a family matter, a family matter. It's one of the most basic and fundamental elementary truths in our Christian faith that in order to have a right relationship with God, you must have a new birth. You must be born into God's family. There's probably no truth that the early Passages of Scripture you heard in your lifetime as a a church-going people heard more than those like in John chapter 1 where John writes, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Or in the passage like in John chapter 3, one that we're probably most familiar with, John chapter 3 and verse number 3, where we hear the story of Nicodemus. And in chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, Verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse number 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he, be, uh, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. This passage of Scripture goes along with that one which is found in First Peter chapter number 1. In verse number 23, Peter writes, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you." what it hammers away at and does more than just these verses elsewhere in the scriptures underline the same truth that before you get to go to heaven you have to be born again you're born of the flesh the first time and you have to have a second birth and I can stand here this morning with all the authority in the world and confidence in the world that God is being honest with us when he says you must be born again. And the reason for that is not only the fact that you have to be born differently to get into heaven. This is one kind of atmosphere. It's like a fish that's in water. And you can think of us as uh, being in water. And the fact of the matter is, in order for you to live on land, you have to have a change. Something has to change. And someday we're going to leave the water as fish, as it were, and we're going to go into heaven. And that atmosphere and that surrounding is so totally different than this one. In fact, so totally different that our loved ones who have already passed off the scene, who are presently there, are there, but they're in spirit. They don't have bodies like you and I have. They're already entered into this separate, different, distinct atmosphere. But someday they'll receive glorified bodies, but not yet. So the fact of the matter is, heaven is a different kind of place, but it is a place, and it is a real place, and people really do go there. They just don't go there like we do. And so if you got this idea of somebody dying and waking up in heaven, walking around like this, uh, you're mistaken. First off, there are men who are in heaven who thought they, they'd never go there if they had to wear a tie. Never. Never go to heaven if they had to wear a tie. The fact of the matter is, people won't be wearing ties in heaven. I'm confident of that. But uh, my point is, it's just different there, and it is circumstanced on this business that you must be born again in order to get there, because you can't get there the way you are. That's the point. And it's not just because we're different physically. It's because we're different spiritually. In fact, different in dead. The Bible says that people who are born into this world are dead in sin and trespasses. So we're not just different so we can't go to heaven in the sense of humanly speaking. We're also different in that we're dead spiritually and the people who go to heaven are only going to be folks who are alive to God. You'll forgive me, but anybody who would come into this service this morning heard the singing of the songs that were illustrated and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and a song like Take Time to Be Holy and a song that Pat just did and so forth. And if you sat through all that and you said to yourself, I'm not, I just don't like all this. I just don't care for any of this. You'll forgive me, but you wouldn't be happy in heaven. You won't be happy in heaven. And you don't want to go there in your present condition. See, something's got to change. You can't just start tomorrow morning and say, I want to go there, I want to go there, and I'm going to go back to that church and I'm going to love their singing. I'm going to love that preaching. I'm going to love all these things that you're supposed to love. That's not going to make any difference in the world. What you want to do and what you feel, it has to be a change. And it has to be so profound that it would be greater than being alive from the dead because that's what it is. You're dead spiritually, and you've got to be made alive to it. That's why you don't like it, and that's why you never would like it. There's no way in the world for me to get you to like me if, in preaching if something about you is not already, quote, born of the Spirit. Because God's Word is what it is you probably don't like. And I couldn't do anything to make you like it. Because you're dead to it. You're dead spiritually to it. So what this passage in Romans 8 takes on a whole new dimension to understand this is a family matter. And when you read it and understand it from that point of view, it makes things a whole lot different. And I remind you that from start to finish, salvation or being born again, as we've talked about in God's family, being born into his family, is an absolute 100% work of God. It's not something you do. It's not something you uh, can help with. It's something God does himself. God brings conviction to your heart to make you realize your need. God gives direction from his word. And then God draws you. And God does the whole thing. And when you come to Him a simple childlike faith, it is God that imparts eternal life within you. And He it is who changes you from a deadness to a life in Him. Reminding you of this, regarding the dynamics of the spiritual birth, you have no more to do with it than you did in birthing yourself into this world as a human being. Now whatever help you were in helping your parents bring you into existence, that's how much help you are in spiritual things of being born again. And anybody with any sense, with any brain between their ears knows I didn't have a thing to do with it. I didn't even know I was going to be born in this world. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the similarities in this truth. This Romans chapter 8 study is uh, that we've come across and already studied several verses. And these verses are intended. I am confident when Paul wrote them under inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, that they were intended to give assurance of salvation to everybody who read them. I do not believe the Bible anywhere writes anything to get you to doubt your salvation. I don't believe that. I believe what the Bible does is it intended to give you assurance, but I believe what it does do, it turns out to be a checkpoint at which we, in fact, test whether or not we know Christ is Savior. It causes us to look at ourselves and to determine whether or not we, in fact, are in the faith when we really have, whether we really have been born into God's family or not. I am convinced, as I stand here this morning before you, that there are multitudes, multitudes of people in church this morning who will not be in heaven and not because I say they won't be there but because they have never truly honestly scripturally biblically been born again they're religious as anybody you have ever met they are making as good a neighbor as anybody ever had, they can speak the language as good as any preacher has ever spoken it but they have never been born again they have oozed into or eased into, as it were, a culture, into a society of pope folk folks who are, quote, believers, or to a church family. And they've taken their place alongside other people, some of which themselves did not know Christ as Savior. They've just learned how to act like it. And only when they die will they come to find out, I never was born again. And they regrettably will hear our Lord say, Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. It wasn't that I knew you and now I've forgotten you. I never knew you. My own burden of heart as a pastor is that one of the great tragedies of this hour is that there are so many people think they're going to heaven when in fact it's obvious and evident by what they say which falls from their own lips when you ask them this question. On what basis are you going to heaven? And they begin to tell you all the reasons they think they're going. And none of them are scriptural. That's sad, you know it? It's sad to live in a country and hear so much teaching and preaching and have so much access to Bibles when they're around the world. There are people who have never seen a Bible. But in America, they come out our ears. We have them sitting on shelves. We have them stuck everywhere. And in America, it's still one of the top-selling books of all time. And yet people in this country die and go to hell believing they're going to heaven. I believe that's part of what these checkpoints are about. So I don't want you to run through them. I want you to check yourself at the checkpoints. For instance, when we look over verse number 5 of Romans 8, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse number 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. Verse number 5 is a way of saying this. If your whole life is focused upon you meeting the old nature's desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, if that's where all your focus is, then don't fool yourself into believing you're going to heaven. You are not. You've been born of the flesh, and you're living after the flesh. You have not been born of the Spirit, or you would have a characteristic of interest in spiritual things and being obedient to the Spirit. That's what verse 5 and verse 6 goes along. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is absolute death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Then he skipped in verse number 9, and we hit it last week. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man, any woman have not the Spirit of Christ, he or she is none of his. They don't belong to Christ. If the Spirit of God doesn't indwell you, you do not belong to Christ. One of the ways you can tell whether you're going to heaven is whether you have the Holy Spirit living in you. If you have Him, you're going to heaven. If you don't have him, you're not going to heaven. Because what the Holy Spirit does for the believer, and there are a multitude of things that we would cover and will cover, I'm sure, in the course of our studies in Romans. But one of the things is that he identifies you with God. I mean, first of all, he identifies you with his word. The Holy Spirit wrote or gave the scriptures to those men of God who penned them for us. The Holy Spirit knows the scriptures. You want to know the scriptures? Get to know him. Get to know him. Be attentive to him. Be sensitive to it. When you read the word, don't read it like a magazine or a novel or the newspaper. Read it like it's a letter from home. And the fellow who wrote it is standing there and whispering in your ear and telling you exactly what I meant when I wrote it. There's other things that the Spirit will do, and we'll talk about those in time. But let me call you to another checkpoint in verse number 14. It's one we come to today. In verse 14, a checkpoint says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they... Are the sons of God So here's the question that you ought to consider Are you led by the spirit of God What leads you What directs you What gives you the guidance for the decisions you make When you sit down in front of a television set or a video What guides you into whether or not you're going to sit through this thing or not Are you going to turn it off Because what it says and what you believe Are contrary one to the other And therefore you know full well You ought to have anything to do with this And you get up and shut it off What leads you Or do you sit there and watch it because that's what the flesh wants to do? You see the point? If you follow what the flesh wants you to do, you, by that very identification, tell us exactly who you belong to. If you belong to yourself, you're going to always do what you want to do. You're going to watch it whether or not God is honored or not. That's not going to have any relevance to you. You're going to do what you want to do, and that's going to be the character of your life. You do what you want to do, and you could care less what God thinks about it. You don't weigh a decision on whether this is good or bad for the Lord's glory or testimony. You just do it because this is what I want to do. You already tell us. You reveal to us whose you are. You're not bought with a price. You're your own. You do your own thing. And your life reflects it by the decisions you make. That's who leads you. Verse number fourteen is a checkpoint. It says, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a child of God. You're not led by the Spirit, you're not a child of God. We make a few points of this, and this is a big issue, I believe, in the whole matter. First off, the question then that you have to face, and any interpreter who's going to study the scriptures correctly is going to have to face it. The question is, what does Paul mean by being led by the Spirit? If you're going to be led by the Spirit, that you need to know what being led by the Spirit is. The first thing I'd point out to you, and this is sort of technical and most technical point I would make, is that in the Greek language here, you have a present passive indicative, as I understand the text. And what that says is the Greek word I go, which is the word we're dealing with here, is that which is already in existence. So what he's saying in verse number 14, for as many as are already led by the Spirit. This is something that they got early on. This is not something you just picked up with as many as are right here today led by the Spirit, rather than somebody saying, well, down the road, you know, there's sometimes I'm led by the Spirit, and and, and then there's other times I'm not led by the Spirit. This word doesn't allow for the ideal that it could happen down the road and not happen before. It really indicates here that this is something that's already in existence. This is an operative thing right here, right now. And obviously we believe that it starts operating the moment that you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's when it starts. And the point is that it should then continue all the time. However, however the word in the Greek, "go" does not allow for it to be totally, absolutely, unequivocally, uninterrupted. I mean... It doesn't say because the word he uses here means that you'll always do what the Spirit says. That's not what the Greek word means. It doesn't always do that. Well, we know that. We know there's no Christian who always follows the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But what we do know is we are to have it, and it started when we trusted Christ as Savior. It's just that it's not always that which we follow. But it does mean this. It is the characteristic of your life that you follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. People who know you would know that you are a person who, by and large, generally speaking, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You would consider on any matter whether you should or you shouldn't do something, you would weigh it on whether it's right or wrong. Because the Spirit never leads contrary to the distinctiveness of who God is. So it's God's Spirit, and He's not going to lead you to do that which would not please God. He always leads us to do that which pleases Him. So people get to know you on how you make decisions. How do you do? What do you do? How do you judge? What makes up your mind? What gives you the impetus to make this decision? The fact of the matter is, you may not always follow the leadership of the Spirit, but you always have access to it, and the general characteristic of your life is a person who seeks to follow the leading of the Lord. There's a third thing that I have called your attention to. The Holy Spirit's leadership, as this word I believe sets forth in motion, would tell us this, that it, he always incorporates the Word of God in his leadership. And that is to say, verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I mean by that that the Holy Spirit, His leading, never, ever contradicts what the Bible teaches. The psalmist says something, and I read it in a devotional time this last week. This is a good verse. It's in Psalm 73. And listen to this. Psalm 73 Verse number 22, he said, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. This is the psalmist speaking. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Verse 24, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. That's sort of the whole progress of uh, the believer's life. He starts out when he's still ignorant and unaware of what God's doing and what God's up to, and uh, but the Lord still has a hold of him. So there's a sense in which there's always this leadership. The Holy Spirit's always got a hold on you. The question is, are you going to be tugging away? Are you Are going to go in the other direction? I thought it was interesting yesterday when the, uh, the young boy, Brandon, was to come up here as a, as a ring bearer, and uh, he was walking up. We had the white steps here in front of the pulpit was gone and as he came here we'd practice for him to come up and go up these steps up here and stand with the men and then the young lady was going to come up and stand over here and uh, the fact of the matter is they would only use the white steps when you left the pulpit or left the platform area and they would go off like this so we practiced that in the rehearsal for the wedding as you know and and he came to the thing yesterday when the ring bearer and the flower girl were coming down the aisle and, and, and they started to go up the white steps and the young lady started this way and the young man took another step toward the white steps brother Bob of our church was sitting on the front row right here and grabbed him by the arm and headed him this way. Let me tell you something that's leadership of the Spirit. See, you can practice all you want to, but the Spirit gets a hold of it and says, No, 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 this way. Here we go, going this way. See, that's a leading, and, and that's sort of a thing by this. By this word, very clearly, the word in the Greek, I go, is used all through the New Testament, and every single time that it's used that I found to the New Testament, in the Gospels at least, it's used of a physical leading. When they led our Lord Jesus Christ away to be crucified. When they led others to do and to accomplish, this, the word is the same. They led them in a physical way. I believe the Holy Spirit does some tugging and moving and pushing. And I believe he moves circumstances to get you going a certain direction. And I believe personally that if you're going to do what you're going to do as a believer, in most cases, if it's going to be bad for you, the Spirit of the Lord is going to be a barrier for you to have to cross over to go do it because he's going to stand in your way. That's what it is. It's the ideal of being in the way to stop you from doing that which you ought not and and an encourager to, to sort of lead you along by taking your arm, as it were, to lead you in the right direction. That's the emphasis of this word here. By the way, you must understand why that's so necessary. The reason it's important for you to understand the scenario here is you have to remember that you came from another family and you had another father. You realize that? You must understand that, that you see John chapter 8 and verse 44, when Jesus was speaking to a group of people who did not know Christ, they were not going to heaven. And he said to those people, and I believe he put his finger to their face, and he said, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. Now let me tell you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're still in your old family. Your father is the devil, and he dislikes, and you're doing exactly what he wants you to do. And what he wants you to do is what you want to do. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. He so cooperates with your flesh that he encourages you. Oh, go ahead. Enjoy yourself. Man, you you only go around once in life. Get all the gusto you can. Grab it by the horns. Sure, go right ahead. And by the way, by the way, you better get all you can here. Because this is all the good you're going to get. It only gets worse from here if you don't know Christ as Savior. And it can get pretty bad here if you don't have it. But the fact of the matter is, what we don't seem to remember is, we came out of a background where the devil was our father, and then we get saved and walk into God's house, and we think we're going to be perfect right down the line. It's just not going to happen. You need some help. You need some leadership. You need somebody to tell you, hey, that may be in the way you did it in your other father's house, but you're not going to do that in this father's house. Your father, the devil, would have loved you to do it that way, but not in my father's house. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He lives inside of you. He doesn't just show up occasionally. He lives in you. And He lives in you to lead you. To lead you. You can't beat that with a Kroger bargain. He lives in you. And His point to live in you is to lead you alone. To help you to do that which would be honoring to Him and a blessing to you. And it always is a blessing to us when we do it His way. There's something else, and I I delight. And how Paul wrote it to Timothy, uh, I so much appreciate his writing it this way. Here's what Paul wrote about the church. He said in 1 Timothy 3:15, "But if I tarry long, and thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth." I like that. The church of the living God. God's not dead. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand, our Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says, and Paul described us under inspiration as a church of saying, We are the pillar and ground of the truth. You know a pillar is something that holds up or supports that which is above. The ground is the ideal, it's the rock, it's the bedrock, it's the foundation upon which that truth rests. And all that's important because, you see, what the church is held accountable for is is before God Almighty that we teach and preach the truth so that the Holy Spirit can change our thinking from our old family way of thinking to our new family way of thinking. And if we don't change, we are no use in the new family. If we're going to keep trying to operate in the new family the way we operated in the old family, I know exactly how you'll operate. Lie like a dog. Because he was a father of lies, and even when he speaketh of his own, he speaketh a lie. Because that's what he's always been. The devil lies. And people who lie and lie and lie and lie and lie are only giving a family trait. It means they don't know God, that's not the way God operates, and that's not the way the church operates. That's why the New Life Baptist Church, it's more than just good. It's essential that everything is above board and out in the open and absolute unequivocal truth. No shady, dirty deal, see. And that's why churches get in messes. When you get into a thing where you try to do something and manipulate things just a little bit and it looks a little shady and the world outside looks in and says, hey, that's the way the world does that. That's the way the old family did that. That's the way the devil's family operates. They do it shady. They do it in, in such a way that they trick it and, and they defraud it. And, and, and it's no place in a church. And God helped this church never to do any of those things and in any way, smack off anything that operates like the devil's family does. If ever there was going to be a difference and a distinction, it ought to be in the way the church operates itself because the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Not lies and deceit and trickery. And I say to you that that's what the New Life Baptist Church must be. And the reason we must be that is because we have the truth. Boy, that's exciting and responsible. You see, it's a big deal to handle the truth. Every Sunday school teacher this morning who handled the Word of God handled a great treasure. And Brian even read the verse this morning from James about the many masters, teachers. Let me tell you something. It is a serious thing to handle eternal truth. And don't you ever forget it. You may be teaching the youngest group of kids our church has. But if you tell them God said something, you better be dead right. You better be dead right. Because these are eternal things. These are not just whims of Baptists. These are not just some good ideas. and These have to be based on, soundly founded and grounded upon what God said. Because that's what makes the difference, and that's the thing we'll be held accountable for. There's that passage of Scripture in in Romans chapter 12 that we'll get to in another few years. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. You know why he said that? We'll detail it later when we get there. But you know why he said don't be conformed to this world? Because who is the God of this world? You'll forgive me and let me not be blasphemous, but your old daddy was. Your old daddy is the God of this world. And you've got a new daddy. And your new daddy and your old daddy are absolute arch enemies. And you're not supposed to conform yourself to the way he did things and the way he ran his household. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to not only have the family trait of doing it the new way, you are also act differently, language different, actions different. Everything about you should reflect your new family. And therefore, in Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, be not conformed, don't go back to the way you were, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And renewing of your mind, obviously, is taking the Scriptures and And listening to them and letting the Holy Spirit direct us through them. So he said, renewing your mind that you may prove or test what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To be led by the Spirit in the context in which Paul writes it here in Romans chapter 8 is simply the Holy Spirit's influence upon your life to get you to comply with what the truth of God's Word says. To get you to become a doer of the word and not just to hear it. And here's the deal. The more you and I understand of what God's up to and what God is out to do in our lives. The more the spirit then helps to apply that to our lives. That is the more you understand it the more the spirit directs you to it. I believe to understand it you have to read the word and to depend on the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's an ongoing thing. I don't think it's just a, uh, you know, a fulfilling devotional commitment in the morning. I believe you, when you read the Scriptures, you've literally got to understand them. And then the Spirit uses it to move you in that direction. Too many times we think there's just this magic portion. If you just pick up the Bible, read two verses, and, you know, presto, you're changed. It's not the way it is. You read them, and then as you seek to understand, what is this saying to me? What does this mean to me? And then the Spirit of the Lord helps you understand it, and then you begin to see what God's up to, and then it's the Holy Spirit moves you toward that. That's the leadership of the Lord. That's the leadership of the Lord. And that's why it goes hand in hand with the Word of God. Those that are led by the Spirit, I believe you could also render it and do fairly to the text of Scripture, are also those who read His Word. Those who are led by the Spirit is it's reading of the Word. That's what He uses to give direction to our lives. You see back over in verse number 13, covered it last week. For if is a word, if we live after the flesh. In fact, the the preposition probably could just as easily be since. For since ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if or since ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. You notice that it's the Spirit's work there. It's the Spirit's work there. The Spirit's work in that context is it's the Spirit, or through the Spirit, that you mortify the deeds of the flesh. Another well, the point made is that you have to understand, first of all, that the deeds of the flesh are bad. How'd you get to know that? The Spirit brought it to your attention when you read the text that says so. When it says the old flesh is not good, it's always going to be working against the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit got you to understand, look, I don't need to comply with the flesh. I don't need to comply with the old nature. I need to stand against it, and the Holy Spirit then helps you Mortify or put to death the deeds, the desires of the flesh. By the way, the reason we say so much and we say it so often around here that every believer should read the word personally daily and should be in Sunday school, in the worship service, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, is so that you give the Holy Spirit something to work with. Something to work with. If you would think of the scriptures as being the ammunition that the Holy Spirit uses to advance you toward the target of spiritual maturity, you'd understand the idea. I understand why in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul called the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. It's a weapon of the Spirit. And if the Word of God does not dwell in you, then the Holy Spirit has nothing to work with. He does not work on a mystical, somehow magical kind of thing. He works with something. What does he work with? He works with the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's his weapon. That's what he deals with. So if you want the Spirit's leading in your life, it presupposes you have to have the Word of God in it. So if the Word of God's not there, sword of the Spirit will mean nothing. He can't do anything. He can't work. He can't move. He can't stir and so the ideal is that you put the Holy Spirit to work with the Word of God, and our lives gets changed. And when we put the two together, it's in that the Holy Spirit reshapes our will. I don't mean He forces you against your will. I simply mean that He'll help you understand what the consequences are if you don't do it God's way. And that's many times the thing that brings us to that. We quote that verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I think, first of all, it presupposes faith in God. And then it points out the fact to follow the understanding the Holy Spirit gives you of God. And then focus on God to please him. And then finally, you find God's path. He then will give you direction to go further in it. All of that wrapped up in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. By the way, I was reading a a devotional rabbit trail. You know, I was reading my devotions, and I, I found a verse, and I didn't realize how this verse related to the passage I was reading in my devotions, so I started chasing this rabbit. And I ran down this verse. I ran across a passage. I want you to see something. And it, and it really, I still don't see how it had to do with the passage I was reading from my devotions. But it surely is a message or a passage for my sermon. So let me show it to you. In Genesis chapter 41 is the text. Genesis 41. Genesis 41. I'm almost thinking and I haven't proven it yet in my Bible. I believe it was a misprint. I believe it was put in there for me to be sure to share it with you this morning. Because it just doesn't fit the text that I was reading for my devotions. I, I, I don't understand it at all. But I do understand it in the context of this message. And let me point it out to you. It's in Genesis 41 and verse number 38. Genesis 41 and 38. It says, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now, you know the story by just that, probably that short verse. And... The chapter that we're reading from we're talking about joseph who was sold down in egypt bondage you remember uh, his brothers were jealous of him they sold him off down there and whatever have you and so joseph has now risen to a very prominent position and what's happening is here the pharaoh is just about ready to give him a promotion and so in verse number 38 the pharaoh said to his servants can we find such a one as this is a man in whom the spirit of god is i want you to understand the impact of that first statement or question you have Pharaoh, who is a, is he a saved man? No, he's not a saved man. Is he a pagan? Prime pagan. I mean, this is the, the pagan of the pagans. This is the ungodly of the ungodly. This guy doesn't worship any god of heaven. He worships all these idols of all these animals and the beetle and everything else. I mean, this guy's got a whole list of gods he serves. But it's not the god of heaven that created everything. So this man's not a saved man. This king is not a saved man. These servants are not saved people. For all we know, there's no reference in the scripture that any of them repented and trusted in the God of heaven, none of that. So the assumption is in that domain, in that palace, there were these people and led by this Pharaoh who was a pagan. I want you to see even what he saw. He saw that in this man, Joseph in this case, he asked this question. Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is. I mean, here's a pagan who perceived that God was working through this man's life, and he's got enough sense to know, says, We need to get this guy on the program. Verse 39 And Pharaoh said to Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou, verse number 40, shalt be over my house. This Pharaoh may be a pagan, but he's not stupid. He finds a man who he tells he can sense that this guy's got some sense of direction that just doesn't come from common sense. My dad used to say, don't trust anybody who doesn't have common sense. I, I, I personally buy that. If a guy doesn't have common sense, stay away from him. Stay away from him. can't reason with him. You can't have any kind of a, a rapport. Just stay away from a guy who doesn't have common sense. But there's a sense in which this guy, this pagan, looks at joseph and says he's got something beyond anything i've seen before there is god dwelling in this guy and the decisions he makes the ideas he has are wonderful i want you on staff and what does he do the verse says in verse number 40 thou shalt be over my house i mean the pharaoh puts him in charge of his whole operation his house You got it all. You take care of it. Verse number 40. And according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. A pagan, his king, ruler, Pharaoh, says you're over all of my house. And more than that, whatever comes out of your lips will be the law and the rule of my people. Why did he do this? Because he perceived in him something that ought to be evident in every believer. That we're led by the Spirit of God. That's the difference that the Spirit of God dwelling in a person ought to be to people. Pagans even ought to perceive it. And I believe they do. I believe that's why one of the reasons they come to us, and and many of you have. They've spoken to you at your workplace. They've spoken to you by calling you at your homes. They've visited you as neighbors. And they've said to you, look, I I know you go to church, and I know you you are religious, and and I wonder, would you pray for our family? Or I wondered, would you you have someone to uh, call on or visit our family? You know, the point I made about that is they say, I know something's different here, and I know there's something that, that you're depending on instead of just yourself, because I have sense, and I went to school, and I may have degrees, and, and I may even be a, a very learned person, but did isn't getting it. So, would you help us? Would you help us? You see, in this story with. with Joseph's case, it impresses me and encourages me to believe that even though Joseph was not even indwelt by the Spirit of God, that work didn't set up until the New Testament. Here was a pagan who recognized in this man that God's Spirit was at work and leading him, directing him, helping him make good decisions. So I say to you, that's an important point. Quickly, because we have to close. In verse number 14, it also says, far as many as are led by the Spirit of God... The good news is they are the sons of God. That uh, phrase, the sons of God, is setting forth a family relationship. And that family relationship of the believers, when you read through Paul's epistles, you'll note something very, very quickly will come to the surface, and that is that Paul writes very little about conversion and regeneration. He'll leave that to others. But what you will see is that Paul writes about the relationship that grows out of conversion. And that's what much of the epistles is about. So building on verse number 14, notice what Paul does in verse number 15. Those last three words, the sons of God, verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Notice two things very quickly. Paul hangs out two points here. He says, first off, There's something you have not received. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's an important thing. And uh, so I think a passage that may help you understand the whole idea here better is found in Galatians chapter 4. So let me ask you to look at Galatians 4 or write that note beside in your Bible because I do believe the parallel of these are very important to understand the point. In Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote this. He says, Now I say that the heir, the heir, you know what an heir is? That's somebody who's in line to receive what parents own. So that heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. So even though you're an heir in a home, if you're a child, technically you differ nothing than the guy who's a slave in the same household. Are we all on the same page thus far? Do you understand that? Understand. You could be born in a home, and if you're a child in that home, and they have a servant in that home, as far as inheritances go, technically there is no difference if you're a child. Please understand that. That's the whole point of what Romans 8 is going to hit you with. So he says it doesn't matter. There is no difference here. Verse 2, but... But is under, he's talking about the child, is under a tutor or tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the, what? Adoption of sons. Verse 6, and because are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his, of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. The point made is this, since you have been born again, born into God's family, you are set free from being, as it were, first of all, a slave to sin. But there's also something else that's come along here. You have nothing else to fear. That is, in verse number 15, for ye have not received the spirit of a bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. So these people, and the circumstance of this text is, are people who have been born again, saved by the grace of God And they are not going to, as it were, be classified as just a servant. They're not going to be on the same level of that. The difference, and what the difference is, is the declaration that's made in the latter part of the verse. What you have received. And what you have received, it says, and by the way, that means it's a fact completed. You have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's a way of saying this. There's a difference between adoption in the scripture and the new birth. That's what you've got to understand. When you were born into God's family, you were born again. You were born out of the devil's family into God's family. But technically, in a sense, that that is the ideal of a child being born into a family. You're no different than a slave. You have no rights until you reach a point where either your parents die and they will give you the inheritance. Or you reach a certain age. You don't get any of the inheritance. You're no different than the servant. But the catch is this, that's where the doctrine of adoption comes in. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you be adopted when you're born into a family? Because adoption doesn't have anything to do with the ideal of taking somebody out of one family and putting it in another family in the sense of making that person this person's son. It is a declaration of what we call legality where it is declared now that you have all the rights and privileges of a son which you were born into the first place. Here's an illustration. In the Roman government, they had where every son born into a Roman home, the father had to make a public declaration of adoption. You say, "What is he born into the family? Absolutely. Born into the family, but he wasn't accepted as a son of inheritance until the father made a big feast and a big padu, And he got up and made the proclamation that this son was adopted into the family. So the word adoption in our society has carried the wrong meaning. We have the idea that this son would be born in some family. They don't want this child. So this child is adopted by this family. That's not the Bible idea. And you need to warp that one out. The Bible ideal is a declaration that says you may have been born into our family, but you have no rights to the inheritance until a declaration is made to that end. And that's what Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 is saying. And that's what Romans chapter 8 verse 15 is saying. You don't have to fear anymore. This business, though you were born into this family, of a of, of fear of going backward or not getting what you deserve or having a concern of being locked back in a bondage kind of, you don't have to worry about that. You have received the adoption. You have been declared eligible at this present time all the benefits that God himself wants to give to you. And that's what adoption is. It is the legal declaration that when you came into God's family, you have an adult standing, an adult status, that you get all the inheritance that is yours through your father. That's what adoption is. And that's why it's so important to understand when you come to Galatians 4 and the passage that's read there. There's a, another verse that's very good that Paul writes in chapter number 2 of Ephesians. Here, he says this and, and what it boils down to is it prompts a question. And, and this is a question that some of us, you know, we, we get wrongly taught. You know, when I was in school, when I was in government schools, uh, our schools were allowed to, uh, to say, that's the word, say the Lord's Prayer any of you grew up where you were in school and you began the day saying "Saying the Lord's prayer our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name and so forth did anybody grow up in a school where that was the first thing you did in the morning somebody did I did I grew up every morning you went to school the teacher would get up and say let's stand we're going to say the Lord's prayer and that's what we did we sat well here's the catch uh, truthfully that's wrong two things one you don't say it it was a prayer so it should be prayed that's the first thing the problem is problem is when I say it and I did then, I wasn't a believer. He's not my father. My father was the devil. That's why I acted like one, you know. I was a kid that wouldn't go to school. My parents paid me to go to school. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. We got kids who are going to school. They could learn a lesson here. But my dad finally decided spankings were better than fifty cent pieces, and so I got paddled every day. And I still ran away from the bus and still went to the hay shed and still missed school and still passed. And I don't understand that at all. I don't that's just I think they did it to get rid of me. But anyway, here's my point. They had me praying, Our Father. And he wasn't my father. So let me tell you this, you shouldn't teach your kids to pray the Lord's Prayer unless they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Look at it. Ephesians 2, verse 2, wherein in time past, in this case it's a past event, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in time past, in the lust of our flesh, the desires of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Two points. Verse number 2, do you think, how can it be, that people who are classified as children of disobedience and children of wrath have any, any business bowing their head to God Almighty and saying, our Father. You see the point? He's saying you, you can't be disobedient children and children of wrath and call me your Father. It ain't going to work. So don't do it. And may I say to all our Sunday school teachers, junior church workers, junior church teachers, anybody who teaches... Don't ever get a group of kids to pray the Lord's Prayer or don't get them to call God Father. He is not their Father. He does not become their Father until they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And it's important for you to understand that and the Holy Spirit wants you to understand that. You see the Bible is very clear and the idea of crying out and and saying Abba Father is a, a way of stating the case. He is He's very dear it's an affectionate term and even though it's a transliteration of Greek and, and uh, in English word it comes from an Aramaic word and it, it literally carries the ideal of daddy father or, or daddy papa it is a dear and affectionate kind of thing and, and the only way that can happen is if there's a relationship of Jesus Christ now I'm going to stop here today I'm not finished with all the sermon at this point I Had things I want to share with you but we'll stop here but let me close the message with this point And that is this, that there are so many people in this world who so very much desire to have what the Bible talks about, people talk about in having a relationship with God and being able to go to heaven. But what they fail to understand is that doesn't come by just our wanting it. You see, one of the bad things about being born in America typically is this. Seldom do people go without what they want long Because we have the where to of to meet that want. You know, that's true. That's why Christmas doesn't mean a lot to people as it did years and years and years and years ago. They just couldn't afford things, and and people had desires, and somebody would surprise somebody with something that they had wanted but couldn't get, couldn't afford to get, and boy, the Christmas gift was just, oh, it was like gold. But you know it, and I know it. Most of you, when you need something, what do you do? You go get it, you have a want. You have the need met, you have the want met, you just go get it. And it's done. In America, that has done a unique thing. It has dulled our understanding of the fact that there are people who want to go to heaven and they think they can just do what they got to do to get there and they begin to set out on that journey of doing everything, quote, right to go to heaven. Let me tell you something. There's nothing in the world you can do right to get to heaven. It has nothing to do with what you're going to do to get there. It has everything to do with the fact that God sent His Son into this world because He loved you. He loved you. For God so loved the world, that you and me and all of us put together, that He gave His only begotten Son. Not that whosoever would keep the Ten Commandments, the Ten Church, write a thousand dollar check every Sunday and be as faithful as they could in praying every day. Make sure you never sit down to do a meal that you don't pray over and make sure you care for your neighbors and make sure you help your kids. And he didn't write out a list of things. He said that folks who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he was saying is, if you'll just believe that God sent his son to do for you what you could not do for yourself and believe that I did it through my son... And believe me to that end, I'll save you. That's the deal. Simple and sweet. So it won't depend on anything you do except believing. And even, you know, when it comes to that, I'll give you the faith to believe. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So if you sit in this service this morning and you say, Well, Pastor, I've I've come to understand that, that I am a sinner. I believe that. And I want to believe and let me tell you something you act upon your belief you get out of your pew in just a moment as we sing the invitation song just as i am and you make your way toward the front of this church and i will meet you here i'll ask you this question why are you coming you say i'm coming to believe on christ i'm coming to receive christ say it any way you want to but to mean that and if you really mean that in your heart then someone can take you to a side room privately and open the Bible and show you how you can believe on Christ and be gloriously saved and on the authority of God's Word, I am confident that you would be saved this morning if that's your heart's desire. You know, because I don't believe God ever puts a desire in a person's heart and then turns his back on them and say, No, 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 I'm not saving you today. No, 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 no. If you've got a heart to be saved, God's got grace to extend to save you. And He'll give you the faith to believe. It has to be your option and your choice. But I assure you this, he's done all the work. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So you owe nothing. Price has already been paid. And he holds out a ticket, as it were, to you and say, This is the free stamped ticket for you to have a right relationship with the Heavenly Father and for you to get to heaven. But you have to receive it. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Will you believe? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that all of us who come who know you as Savior, the same road. There are not a hundred roads to heaven. There are not a hundred roads to God. There's one. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This morning I rejoice in that because it doesn't confuse us. There's not a lot of roads. There's one road. It is Jesus Christ. And I thank you for narrowing the road. And so this morning I'm asking you, Father, to do what no mortal can. And I'm asking you to reach down into the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls in this building and bring a sense of conviction about their need of Christ a need of their relationship with you being set on solid rock. And I pray today that they may walk down this aisle and allow someone to take a Bible and take them to a side room and show them how they can be gloriously saved. Not only know God as Savior's Lord and, and guide of their life, but also know Him as a friend, someone who wants the very best for them and who can help them in every decision of life by giving them direction from His own word. And, Father, I would pray that you would help them to make that decision today and not put it off as the devil will encourage them to do, but help them to make the decision this morning that is so vital to the success of their life and living. I pray for believers here this morning that you'll help them to get a sense of the blessing that we've been given. We've been declared legally of age so that we have access and are in line for every one of the inherited riches that are ours in Christ. We don't have to wait until we die to get them when we go to heaven. We are in line for them now because we have been declared an adopted child. And therefore, these are all ours by legal processes of authority of yours. So I pray today you'll help us to not only understand these matters of being born into God's family, but having a declaration of a son or a daughter. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to then embrace these and believe them by childlike faith and enjoy the benefits that come to us because of this new status. So I pray for believers. They may come for salvation, baptism, church members, whatever people come. Help us to address those needs in that context. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And if you need a hymn book, turn to 282. Just as I am without one plea. As we sing this first stanza of the song, if God has spoken to your heart, I would invite you to come. And whatever your need is, I can assure you Christ can meet it. Not sure I can, but he can. And that's who we will point you to. So if you know in your heart of hearts that you never believed on Christ as Savior, or you have some doubts about it, we'd be glad to have you. If you've uh, helped you, if you've had some checkpoints come up in Romans 8 that you've concerned about, then maybe you want to talk about it. If you do, we're glad to do so. Point made is, if God has spoken, it is at that time you need to act upon it, because just like uh, um, any kind of steel that gets hot and red hot because of the heat. It'll cool off once it gets away from the heat source. So once you walk away from here, I'll tell you what the devil will do. He'll blow up on everything you've thought about this morning. He'll cool it all off and say, well, we can wait till another day. We can think about that, and we'll think about it, and we'll think about it, and we'll think about it. The only problem with that is you have no promise of tomorrow. You have no promise of tomorrow. I have no promise of tomorrow. And what you know to do, you ought to do while you can and especially as it pertains to your relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you will. 282, verse 1. Let's sing together, please. Just as I am without one plea If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? And let's sing the second stanza, please. Verse number two. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much. I appreciate deeply your being here, and I appreciate your attention. And I trust the Lord will minister to your heart with his word, not only what you've heard, but also what you'll be thinking about of his word for the rest of this day. Hope you'll be back with us for the evening service, 6 o'clock this evening. Brother Byron will be preaching, so please bring your Bible. Come and join us then. Choir practice at 5, 5.30 men's prayer downstairs, and then our birthday fellowship after the service this evening. I hope you will join us then, please. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing as we go. And do please be safe and careful getting out of the parking lot, onto the roads, and do use the same carefulness in returning this evening. Our Father, again, we're grateful for the privilege we have to call you our Father. Thank you that this privilege is not everybody's. Not everybody in America enjoys it. And it's not because we're better than they that we do. It is because of your good, gracious Spirit reaching out to us and convicting us of our sin and causing us to realize what we were and what we needed to be. And the difference therein was such that was overwhelming that the options were few and far between. And, Father, this morning I pray now that you may drive these truths home to our hearts as we've heard them from your Word today and cause us, I pray, as believers to be very conscious of your leadership in our lives through your Spirit. And I pray, Father, for any who are here again that have never trusted Christ and they are going to leave here without Christ. I pray your spirit would continue to work on their hearts and draw them and convict them and help them to realize the truth of which we speak. And it's your word that's important here to be remembered, not the words or the comments or the appraisal of a preacher. So I pray today that your word would dwell in each of us richly and bring forth the fruit it ordained to be brought forth.